Colleagues, uh, this is Karen Tate, and uh, if you're listening, uh, this is Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And that song uh, that you heard uh, the opening to was by Abigail Spinner McBride, Let the Way Be Open. Uh, Abigail is a great artist out of Las Vegas, and uh, uh, I think that was an appropriate little tune to open up tonight's show about uh, magical activism. Uh, tonight I have uh, with me uh, for part two, Leah LaFleur. Uh, we're going to be talking about magical activism, and Leah uh, is a grassroots organizer and magical activist from Portland, uh, and she's returning to the show to discuss magical activism at this very important time in our history. Uh, her work within the system includes being a Bernie Sanders delegate to the DNC convention in 2016. Uh, you can actually catch uh, our interview in the archives uh, that we did shortly after that event. Uh, she's also served uh, two consecutive terms as the elected chair of the 3rd Congressional District Committee for the Democratic Party of Oregon, and she's currently running for her first government office, Metro Counselor in District 6 in Oregon's May 2020 primary. So let the way be open to her victory as well. Uh, Leah uh, will share her wisdom uh, with us tonight for working within the system. Uh, she'll talk about uh, what this activism has to do with elective office, uh, how she decided to run for office, and, you know, I'm going to ask her if she's still feeling the burn. Um, and, of course, all of this really boils down to um, how her spirituality informs what she hopes to accomplish in elected office and how um, we all need to start thinking about uh, reconciling our spirituality and our politics, uh, a really important thing moving forward. So, um, welcome. Welcome, Leah, to the show. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm so grateful to be here tonight. Well, you know, we had such a good time uh, talking last time uh, when we broached the subject of magical activism. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we never have enough time. And uh, we have, there's just so much to talk about, especially uh, how things are going these days. But, um, you know, let's kind of start at the beginning a bit. And, you um, uh, you know, for those who, you know, might think these two things don't go together, you know, magic and activism and politics, um, you know, how do you explain what magical activism has to do with elected uh, office? 
Well, I would say that magical activism works on lots of different levels, and it's all about raising and directing energy. So magical activism um, can take the form of um, a group of people getting together, or even a single person, um, to raise energy um, towards climate justice. Um, and that is one way that this can happen. It can happen in larger groups and more formal settings. But also, as it is a person or about people uh, raising and directing energy in a larger group dynamic, um, this can include um, public policy intents for people who are working from the inside of the system. So not just being the person who writes things, but knowing that your writing is a magical act, putting the energy and intention into what you hope to manifest, you know, creating um, public policy through magical activism, I guess you would say. So for somebody who has maybe never heard the expression before, uh, you described it as, you know, raising energy. Um, can you give a, a couple examples of what raising energy might be to the novice? Um, so one of the um, ways that we can raise energy, um, the, the first, uh, well, one of my earlier magical activist um, uh things that I did was, um, I called it Ritual for Bernie, um, but truly it was a ritual for the progressive movement. And um, it was voting our hearts ballots, right? What could we, what would we vote for if we could, if we could get anything that we possibly wanted or needed? And um, things like uh, universal health care and uh, income uh, equality and um, all of the types of things that, um, that people who are struggling right now really need. Um, and the group of us got together and said the things that we wanted to vote for on our, our heart's ballot and then raised energy around that. And what we did to raise this energy um, was we uh, did a chant. And as we um, uh, did the chant, we focused the energy as the priestess of the ritual. It was my job to... Um, hold space for the energy and to uh, increase it as um, the apex of the um, the intention was set, um, and then to to end that and to ground the the rest of the energy. Um, so that's chanting is one form of energy raising. Dancing, I guess, is another one. Well, and, and you could probably even say um, some muggle stuff like uh, phone banking and going door-to-door -door or marching. Uh, those all raise energy Absolutely. too, right? Totally. And a march yeah. is kind of like a concert. You know, if you've ever been at a big concert where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of energy, but nobody's really directing it until the band gets on the stage. Um, a, a protest march is very similar. And yeah, that's like perfect kind of place to be raising energy for this, for magical activism. Right. Right, right. Well, and you know, um, you know, as a, I think most of my listeners probably know, you know, I'm also a Bernie supporter, um, and and I and I guess I should say, you know, uh, hindsight, 
Um, you know, Bernie might not have won last time, you know, with the DNC stacked against him and that whole, you know, all of those shenanigans, but look at what Bernie's accomplished. I mean, his message, his, his diligence, his tenacity, and continually going around the country educating people about all the things he believes in has totally changed a Democratic platform. And look how many of the, um, you know, the Democratic candidates who would never have been supporting these kinds of things. They know if they don't support this kind of stuff that uh, Bernie was proposing in 2016, um, you know, nobody's going to give them the time of day because that's the way the country's moving now. Absolutely, absolutely. And part of Bernie's magic was changing the conversation. You know, he... It takes lots of steps for us to manifest what we want. However, the first step is being able to talk about it. And when nobody was talking about Medicare for all as a plausible thing in any way, you know, it was Bernie that said, no, absolutely, we can do this. And then the conversation became, oh, how can we do this? You know, is this possible instead of no conversation at all? You know, that's, there's energy in that. And, yeah, I like how you said phone banking as uh, magical activism. I can totally feel the energy going, you know, through the phone, you know, out into the network and connecting with people all over the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, because for someone who might be sitting home alone uh, and wants to do something and, you know, maybe they don't want to march in the street or there's no opportunities to do something like that, uh, they can certainly, you know, help raise that energy and contribute, uh, you know, their focused energy on uh you know, on something like that, you know, if you want to do something beyond maybe, you know, send in a small donation or something like that. Um, well, you know, I, uh, I, I love that, uh, that you've connected these two uh, subjects in, and as you said, you know, in a, uh, in a verbal way, because when you think about it, Leah, um, I think part of the problem today is the fact that we have so few leaders out there, uh, with the exception of Bernie, um, you know, really talking to people about, um, you know, how we can make things better. Instead, you know, we have more people telling us about the things we can't do. Or, you know, lately my shtick has been, uh, you know, I really feel like we're conditioned to take abuse and exploitation and well, we make suffering a noble thing. So we end up with a culture that's you know, primed for being taken advantage of, you know, and, uh, and and I think without, yeah, so without leaders like Bernie or we used to have Martin Luther King, you know, people like that out there motivating people to uh, uplift themselves and to fight for a better life, I think maybe in part that's how we've gotten to where we are as well. You know, we've sort of let everything slipped through our fingers because we've had no leaders um, guiding us to, uh, you know, demand a better quality of life. Right. There's nobody holding the highest vision. However, there are many people who are looking for the race to the bottom. And it 
it makes it so difficult for any of us to rise up when when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs on the very bottom layer is food, clothing, and shelter. And the next one after that is being able to think about, you know, your world and how you can make it better. If you can't overcome the problems of being able to feed, clothe, and house yourself, how will we ever be able to accomplish the problems of the next level? We need to change our subsistence living strategy, and we also need people who are holding the highest vision. Well, and at the risk of sounding paranoid or like a conspiracy theorist, I think that's a strategy. You know, um, I think it's geared that way. You know, again, you know, religion teaches us to accept suffering and sacrifice. You know, as a former Catholic, what was our image? Jesus suffering on the cross. So, you know, making noble suffering and sacrifice rather than someone saying, well, how's your quality of life? You should have a good quality of life. You know, who's preventing you from having a good quality of life? You know, those conversations, uh, you know, just don't seem to happen. And, um, you know, I, I think as, as we've, we've started to settle for crumbs, um, including, you know, what the corporate Democrats want to dish out to us, in my opinion, is, is just crumbs. Uh, and uh, it, it just, uh, it, it feels like we, I, I wish we had 10 Bernies out there, uh, <laughs> you know, motivating people to, you know, strive for, uh, like you said, um, what, what was the expression you used? The, the highest vision rather than, mm-hmm. you know, t- it always, always telling us to settle, you know, settle for the crumbs. And um, anyway, <laughs> we're kind of, kind of getting a little sidetracked, but, but maybe not because, you know, I, I think, you know, before you do any kind of magical activism, you have to have a vision. You know, you have to know what you, what you're, uh, you know, what's possible, what you're fighting for, what you need, and um, you know, so so maybe it really starts there. You know, um, you, you know, and our words are powerful. So you know, what we speak into the world, um, you know, all of that matters. I would agree, and you know, I think that holding our highest vision allows us to see the steps that it takes to get there. You know, all of these short-term visions that just get solved or ignored, um, all this incrementalism, it doesn't really take into account the bigger picture, the picture of the world that will continue on after you and I and people our age and older are no longer here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, you know, so you're getting ready to run for office, so um, you're going to be, uh, when, when you get elected, and, you know, I <laughs> prophesize that it will, it shall be, especially with that great little commercial you have, I'm so glad you sent it to me, it was just so creative, um, you know, you've, you've worked within the system before, and now you're going to work within the system again, um, you know, what, you know, did that teach you anything that, um, you know, you think would be valuable for listeners to know? Um, you know, I think that for a really long time, um, people who have been motivated to, uh, to make change in our, our society on, on larger issues have chosen to do so uh, through um, special interest groups 
uh, people interested in um, nature join the Sierra Club. People interested in, you know, more world issues join Greenpeace. And then these organizations put external pressure on governments and governing bodies uh, to get them to do what the organization wants it to do. And there's only so much pressure they can put on organizations when there's no pressure from the organization inside pushing out. And I think that that is really one of the things that is going to change the conversation, that people who are motivated spiritually, you know, for the mitigation of suffering of living things on the earth and the earth itself, you know, from the spiritual perspective of harm none, you know, and do as you will. For, for people who are motivated in these ways to recognize that in order to really make long-term substantive change, we need people on the inside as well and people that need to, to see that they hold the vision in themselves and know that this is something that they can do. Well, and, and you know, and, and I'm thinking, too, um, working on the inside, um, you also uh, had to um, find the talent within yourself to maybe work with people whose vision wasn't the same as yours. Um, I mean, I think I recall uh, when we spoke uh, in Magical Activism Part 1, I think part of it was um, – you know, bringing, finding common ground, so to speak, if I, if I recall correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, having these larger conversations with different kinds of people is really what we need to do. I, there are so many things that are both blessings and curses. Um, I love my dad. Um, and also he is a double down Trump supporter and has been a, fiscal conservative for his entire life. Um, We don't see eye to eye on much politically, um, but having conversations with him has allowed me to see what the other side of things are and for me to evaluate what I think about this position and to hear a person argue for it, um, which allows me then to be able to make similar types of arguments to people who I'm not necessarily preaching to the choir with <laughs> who all, who just kind of hear what right. I'm having to say because we're similarly motivated. Um, so yeah, right. it's a strange gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I, I recently took a compassionate integrity course and, uh, and part of it was, uh, you know uh, how to develop empathy, uh, it, and it's easy to have empathy for people who see things the way you see things. It's much harder to have empathy for people who are on another planet. You know, in terms of how they see the world and uh, you know how how they would move forward or who they would choose for their leaders. But you know, it came down to common humanity. And, um, and, you know, now, uh, you know, maybe everyone can't, um, you know, see the common humanity between polar opposites. Uh, but that's, but in a way, I, I think and that's an important tool uh, because when you start to realize that everybody really wants the same things, 
then maybe you can start to reach um, you know your polar opposite uh, you know when you can approach it you know from that uh, from that standpoint yes I would agree if you if you come to an a, a discussion with a person who has different views or values than you um, already predisposed to not hearing them or feeling argumentative towards them without first coming from that empathy place it makes it really difficult to have a conversation where either of you hear each other and that's the whole thing you know i well and and i and i have to ask you if if you don't mind and if and if you don't want to answer that's perfectly okay um but what have you learned from your from your dad i mean what do trump supporters i mean how are they turning a total blind eye to everything that's going on and how can they possibly think this guy is really doing a good job and isn't a threat to the world um they are motivated by authoritarianism, and that's pretty much the long and short of it. The more bluster, the happier my dad is. It's an emotional thing. There's no rational thing behind so it. So they they just so they like the strong man, and the yeah. uh, and you know when when he when he talks about the uh, ISIS person who uh, was running down the the tunnel. Screaming and crying, that just, uh, that's like red meat, I guess. Right, right. Or, yes, whoever yeah. he's mocking currently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, so are you still feeling the burn? Are you, are you, uh, you going to vote for Bernie in the primaries? I absolutely am. Um, and I'm still active with Bernie PDX on the leadership team. We just had a phone bank at my house. Last weekend, um, we made calls into Colorado, I think, um, and all of the early primary states are um, are on the dialer. Uh, if anybody else is feeling the burn from their home, wants to get involved, uh, the Bernie dialer is berniesanders.com slash call, and you can call anybody <laughs> who's uh, on their list um, and uh, Bernie evangelize uh, to, uh, to people in early um, – primary states. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm curious because I know you were, you know, you were working, uh, you know, with the, you know, you were a delegate to the DNC convention and things like that. Uh, is there any, um, anything you can tell us that, um, you know, listeners might not actually be hearing about the polls or Bernie or, um, you know, what's, you know, Biden's popularity or lack thereof? Um, any thoughts along those lines? Um, you know, not too much. Um, I'm on kind of a news gray out. Um, I just, I think that Bernie's message has totally changed the game. And unless you're echoing what Bernie has to say, you're probably not going to make it out of the primary. Um, it seems like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie are on the same page for a lot of things. Um, other people, you know, I would say just it's a matter of time before. I mean, Beto's already out, so you know, who's next? 
Well, and I'm I, I you know I just it's just total speculation, but I have a feeling that uh, as Biden starts to lose ground in the polls, um, I think Buttigieg, Buttigieg is going to end up being uh, the one carrying the corporate mantle. Because uh, he's got so much, uh, you know, he's got so much money from the gay community. Um, I don't know, just a just a thought that crossed my mind. I don't know if, uh, it, you know, if anyone else um, maybe sees that coming, but uh, it'll be interesting, I guess, to see how Iowa votes. Mhm. Yeah, I was thinking kind of Kamala might be that over over Mayor Pete, but hard to say. Still anybody's game. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to you, um, you know, running for uh, office, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, now, it, now, it's called um, – it, it, you're going to have to explain this to me a little bit. Um, it's something you, – you call it your metro campaign. But uh, tell us what that is a little bit and what made you decide to run for office. Sure. Um, so – Metro Council um, is a a tri-county government over the three most populous counties in Oregon, um, Washington County, Multnomah County, and Clackamas County. And um, it has a very limited scope of things that it does. It does regional transportation planning. um, It does um, the urban growth boundary. It does regional solid waste shipping. And it also owns and runs um, some public parks, the zoo, the convention center, and a few other things. Um, So uh, Metro, actually, Oregon had to get the federal constitution changed in 1978 to allow for a tri-county government um, because the uh, um, constitution only allowed for um, state governments and city and county governments. So a tri-county government was a novel thing, and uh, and now we have that. So, um, and and it's the thing about um, the regional solid waste management uh, that got me interested in Metro specifically. Um, back when I was an eighth grader, um, I was in uh, a science class, and I learned that the Earth is a closed system. And once I understood that, I was like, well, you can't throw anything away because there is no such place as away. It's all, it's all in. There's, there's no out. It's a closed system. Uh, And that got me thinking about garbage and its accumulation. Um, When I was uh, um, in college, I went to school for social work. And um, one of my instructors uh, asked anybody in the class to raise their hand if they had ever thought of running for office. And no one's hand went up. And he said, you know, this is the problem. Attorneys run for office. Business people run for office. Doctors run for office, and then they make policies that benefit the industries that they come from. Who represents the people? Where are the social workers who are making policies and, and legislating on behalf of the people? And I was like, well, that's totally true. Um, I, at some point in time, I will run for office. Um, and then Bernie came along. Um, when I moved to Portland back in 2001, um, I met a woman who told me about her mayor uh, when she lived in Burlington, Vermont, a guy named Bernie Sanders, and how he had just gotten elected to the House of Representatives. And um, I started following his career and saw he was a person of incredible integrity who really supported working people and thought, 
if this man ever runs for president, I'm totally going to do everything I can do to help him. Well, when he, he announced, I was like, okay, I'm all in for Bernie. And um, I volunteered for the campaign, and I got elected as a delegate to go to Philadelphia and represent him. And at the convention, when the roll call vote had ended and he had um, conceded, uh, he said to his followers, you know, sure, this happened. But what would we have done tomorrow if I had gotten the nomination? You know, we would join the party. We would run for office. We would do the things that we were going to do anyway. So do those things. And I was like, okay, Bernie says it's time to run for office. (laughs) So that was when I was like, okay, it's time. And I had been doing the things that I had been doing in my campaign um, or in for Bernie's campaign really um, got me prepared uh, to do things to run my own campaign. Um, And also through my network um, with the Democratic Party, I was able to um, uh, get into a women's Democratic uh, candidate training program called Emerge. It's a a nationwide program. It's, I think, in 26 states right now. Progressive women, liberal women, Democratic women, if you're considering running for office, um, going, applying for the Emerge program in your state, I would totally recommend that. Um, so, yes, uh, here it is, my interest in garbage and Bernie Sanders and Metro, and now I'm running for, for Metro to, to change the way that we do garbage. Wow. Like uh, like three legs of a stool. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty incredible. I love I love your story. So um, for so you you know you've given some tips for people who maybe want to do it. And I mean and obviously you're starting in lower levels of government. It's not like you reach for the House of Representatives, you know, on your first try. Uh, but for somebody who might say, well, don't you need a lot of money to run for office? Um, how are you funding your campaign? Um, well, right now it's still really early, so I'm doing fundraising. Um, I have a budget. You know, for, for everyone's district, it's going to be different. Um, my district is kind of large. There's over 200,000 people in it. So there's not going to be a way that I can knock every door, even if I started now. Um, some districts are a lot smaller. Um, uh, I have a friend who ran for Oregon House District 37, and I think she said there's 14,000 people in her district. Well, she was able to canvas all of them twice. So, you know, depending on how large your area is will affect how much money you'll have to spend. Um, And really, in my budget, most of the money is going to be spent on a mailer. The mail pieces are like 50 cents each because of postage. So I'm going to have to be uh, very scrupulous um, when it comes to who gets the mailer. Uh, which is why um, I thought that social media advertising would be a better um, economic choice for my campaign. Uh, So I worked with um, friends uh, to create the animated ad uh, that tells a little bit about me and why I'm running for office. But I don't know that that's a choice that everyone would make. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, but, but uh, I mean, it's it's a great ad. Um, I mean, it tells you everything you need to know, and it does it in such a, a happy, fun way. I mean, for heaven's sake, you're talking about trash, you know, and uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not <laughs> uh, it, it's 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 not a, a beautiful subject, but um, I mean, it just you, you just made me smile from ear to ear. Um, can uh, people outside your uh, area support you? They sure can. Um, uh, my website is up, and um, I can take donations from people from anywhere. Uh, so um, my website is Lafleur the number four Oregon dot com, uh, L A F L E U R the number four Oregon dot com. So whoever, anybody who would like to support my campaign um, of magical activism through Metro and uh, the Garbage Revolution, can certainly uh, make a donation uh, at my website. I like that the garbage revolution. <laughs> um, well, uh, well, Leah, we're we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a break here for a minute, and uh, we're gonna come back. And uh, I want to hear your thoughts about um, uh, the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement and Greta uh, Thunberg. And uh, you know we'll uh, you know we'll take it from there. But. Uh, Right now, uh, I want to play for listeners uh, something from a review of Joe Carson's book uh, titled Celebrate Wildness. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Carson's book Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s and through the years only found snippets of information on Feriferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Ferrifaria's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Ferrifaria. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Ferraferia website at ferraferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And just to clarify, Joe Carson's lovely book, Celebrate Wildness, is available only at that website, ferraferia.org, F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. So if you just happen to tune in, uh, I am talking tonight uh, with Leo LaFleur, and we're uh, talking about uh, this, the topic of magical activism, and this is our part two uh, Leah is an engineer and a grassroots organizer and a magical activist in Portland, Oregon. Uh, she's running for office, and uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, what magical activism is and um, 
politics and reconciling our spirituality and our politics. So, um, Leah, um, I, I guess I, I want to ask you first before we get into the Green New Deal, um, you know, because in a way I think maybe your answer is going to be parallel. Um, you know, how would you t- explain to someone, um, you know, how your spirituality informs um, your politics or what you hope to accomplish uh, in elected office? Um, well, I would say that at the root of my spirituality is the Wiccan Read, um, which says to harm none and to do as you will. Um, and being a Wiccan, um, I feel a very strong connection to the earth. Uh, the earth, not just as a thing that we all live on, but a living being in and of herself. So my ideas about why we need to make the changes that we do and the importance of it have to do with my connection to um, my desire to to mitigate suffering of, of life on earth and of the earth itself. So that's where my my passion comes from. Uh, it's definitely rooted in my spirituality. Well, and, and it makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's not that hard to extrapolate then, um, you know, just from a practical standpoint, then why you're worried about trash. Uh, you know, just like why we'd be worried about plastic in the oceans and, uh, you know, and, and all of those sorts of things. It, it's about the health of the planet and, um by association, uh, everything that lives on it. Right. The earth is our mother. We must take care of her. Yeah, and, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, I would always kind of scratch my head. You know, I would be in pagan groups and, you know, giving a talk on, you know, goddess values or something, and I would say uh, how important it is to reconcile our spirituality and politics. And people would kind of look at me, and I, I could tell they they didn't really get it, you know. And um, uh, I, I don't know, you know, I guess I don't, I, I don't think it's that hard to um, to understand, you know, even if it just comes down to, you know, maybe you're not going to be somebody that's going to run for office, but at the very least, if you care about the earth, maybe you don't vote for the political party that's, you know, always for the corporations and the developers that destroy Mother Earth, you know. Um, I don't know, it just seems so much simpler and black and white to me. Right, and and those kinds of acts um, are private acts, things that you can do without necessarily um, calling yourself out as a a pagan person, um, which you know could get you ridicule or harassment. So. Right. Well, you know, because you could easily approach it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, you're an, uh, you know, you're an eco-feminist, or, uh, you know, you you care about the ecology. You know, um, uh, you know, you, you you know, you wouldn't even have to mention your spirituality. You know, if if you're a pagan, but you know, we're supposed to be wise stewards uh, of the earth. You know, not um, uh, not the the exploiters you know, of of the earth for, for endless growth and greed. 
Um, which I guess uh, brings me to the the Green New Deal. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think it's too ambitious? Will cost too much money? Um, where do you you know where do you shake out on that? Oh, I think it is long since time for something like this to have happened. Um, the way that we have been looking at our climate, our infrastructure. Um, we essentially say, okay, it would cost one dollar to fix this problem today, or ten dollars to fix it in ten years. We'll we'll fix it in ten years. Well, ten years goes by, and it's like, okay, we need to pay ten dollars now, or we can pay a hundred dollars in ten years. Let's pay a hundred dollars in ten years, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, how many of these have we? How many iterations of this have we been down? You know, this is a horrible rabbit hole where. Things are suffering. Things that should have been managed a long time ago just have been put to the wayside. But now we've got to pay. We must. We, we have no other choice. Um, and the Green New Deal is the perfect framework for this. Uh, not only does it address infrastructure things um, through uh, green energy projects, which we should have in every single state in the United States, um, it also uh, demands living wage jobs for the people who create this infrastructure project. So it's hard to imagine if you want to improve the life in your community uh, to, to take in these jobs, to get this green infrastructure, and to, to improve your local economy. I mean, it just it makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, the way there's, I, I mean, and I honestly have not researched this, so, um, you know, I, I'm really looking to you because I, 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 it sounds like you've probably, you know, done a better job of researching than I've had a chance to do so far. But, you know, the pushback uh, that I've seen is that it's too expensive. That, uh, But do you, do you think the, the way they uh, say they're going to fund it is, is realistic? You know, I, I think that that's not even the right conversation to have. When was the last time anyone said, we can't go to war, war is too expensive? Good point. Absolutely. We good can point. find the Thank money. You. If it's important corrected. to us, we will find <laughs> the money. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I believe that. I mean, and even now, you know, is uh, they're starting to beat up on Elizabeth Warren uh, about her Medicare for all. Um, I mean, that was the very thought that came to mind, uh, you know, for me about that. You know, they can find money for everything else, but, you know, to do anything for the people, um, you know, uh, they, they just never can seem to find the money. It's, you know, it's always for the 1% right. in the military-industrial complex. So um, we just so need legislators who will prioritize this. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I mean, I don't know if these election results that came out uh, this morning are any indication, but uh, you know, maybe people are getting fed up with uh, you know the status quo uh, as, as it will. Um, well, in your materials, you uh, mentioned something about the the Sunrise Movement, and uh, I actually I've never heard of that before. What is the Sunrise Movement? Uh, the Sunrise Movement is the um, national organization that is creating the Green New Deal, um, the public policy part of it, and um, also doing outreach in every state 
uh, to inform local people about what the Green New Deal can bring to their local economies. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and Greta um, Thunberg, am I pronouncing her last name correctly? Thunberg? I think it's Thunberg. Or is it Thunberg? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, I, you know, I, I I thought it was so appalling the way some of these, uh, you know, male politicians, GOPers especially, uh, went after that uh, that young woman. I mean, I, I just think she's uh, this courageous uh, heroine. Um, you know, it. it uh, I don't know. I, I wondered if you wanted to say anything about her and uh, and the and the climate justice movement. Oh, sure. Um, well, I would definitely say that clearly the Republican people who attacked Greta attacked her personally. Uh, so that shows you that they do not have arguments about the merits of her um, of her things. So that's to me, that's a, yeah. a ringing endorsement that Greta is doing the right thing. They can't <laughs> argue with her on policy. They can only call her names. Yeah, well, and that's kind of what they're reduced to, um, you know, with most things uh, these days. You know, it's never about the substance. It's always the saber rattling about, uh, you know, it's just always a, a distraction. Um, so, um, so tell me about Kelsey Juliana. Um, I don't know who she is either, and um, she's involved in some important court case. Yes, yeah, so um, she's actually, I think she's 23 now, um, but five years ago she was one of the lead plaintiffs um, in uh, um, Juliana um, uh, versus, I think it's the United States government. So the case is commonly called Youth v. Gov. Um, but Kelsey is from um, Oregon. Um, there's like 10 plaintiffs who are all under the age of 18, and they're suing the government, saying that, the government has known for a long time that the actions that we are taking are harming the environment and going to make an unlivable planet for children when they become adults. And it's the government's obligation, because the environment is a public trust, to stop what we're doing and turn it around so that the world can be a livable place for the people who are being born today and after. So what's happening with that? Where is it, in, you know, in the process? Um, right now, uh, I think there there was a um, another hearing um, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, that happened over the summer, um, and um, I think that they're still in discussion on um, the merits of the case. Well, and I'm thinking, couldn't they also bring that same, uh, a similar case against all the, you know, the, uh, the oil and gas industry? I mean, they've known for decades too that they were destroying the the environment. Um, I, I, is, is there anyone bringing suit against them? I wonder. Um, I believe that the suit is against the government because the argument is that the environment is a public trust. So the environment is um, essentially owned by the government. So the government's management of it, that it is harming people, uh, makes the government um, available to sue. I don't know how, 
what the legal arguments would be against um, oil and gas companies or other types of things like that. Hmm. Well, you know, lately um, I've I've kind of been on this rant about, um, you know, all of these corporations, whether we're talking about, you know, Monsanto with Roundup or we're talking about, you know, the pharmaceutical companies with the opioid crisis or, uh, you know, the oil and gas with, uh, you know, having, you know, fracking, uh, you know, poisoning the water, uh, everything that they've done. And, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on from, you know, industry to industry to industry. And, um, you know, if, if someone goes out there and kills 10 people, well, they're a serial killer and they go to jail as a serial killer. And, you know, I, I honestly, you know, maybe I'm getting crazy here, but I kind of think these CEOs should not be buffered. Um, you know, why are they not being held accountable when their products kill people? I mean, why is it any different? And I don't know. I mean, that would be the platform I'd run on if I was going to run for office. <laughs> you know, Personal um, liability I, I mean, for executives. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, like here in California, you know, we were just talking about infrastructure and the and the jobs the Green New Deal would create. I mean, I don't know whether you've seen how bad it's been here in California in the news, but PG&E, one of the major utility companies, you know, the, the CEOs have been getting big fat bonuses for years and years and years instead of investing the money that, you know, all of us little people pay for our, you know, utilities into uh, keeping the um, you know the grid upgraded. I mean, we've we've been you know having blackouts um, just so that we don't catch on fire. You know, right? I mean, that would they, not happen been, if um, PG&E were a public utility. That it is a private entity well, and is managed for a profit is an enormous problem. Yeah, and and, and you know, and it it seems like to me that. Um, you know, uh, it, 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 there should be a way to uh, make it a public utility instead of a privately owned company, you know, because, you know, we, we trust these people and, um, you know, look what happens. You know, there, there should be some accountability because I think about all the small businesses. I mean, there was story after story of, you know, these little mom-and-pop bakeries that had to throw out thousands of dollars worth of food or, uh, you know, people who couldn't run their CPAP machines or, uh, you know, their uh, kidney machines and things like that because the power would be off for days. I mean, it, 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 in this day and age, it's just crazy that, uh, you know, that we're having to go through this, and it's, it's all about greed, um, you know, and, and a lack of accountability. And, uh, you know, there, what was the phrase you used um, that, uh, for, the, for the CEOs to be held accountable? What did you call it? Oh, personal liability. Personal liability, yeah. There, there should be personal liability, and or, or like Boeing, you know, with the planes. You know, I mean, if if they knew they were going to suffer personally for these decisions they made, I mean, if if that could just happen across the board, can you imagine all the things that would instantly change? Yeah, absolutely. You know? Part it, of the it, reason it, that people, part of uh, part of the reason that people do that uh, as corporations, though, is that. As long as things are done within the course and scope of employment, then people are not personally liable. It's the corporation that's liable. 
So we would have to change corporation law in order to make that happen. Well, and 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 that's a good point, and and I get that. I mean, that's why you know people, uh, you know, private individuals become uh, corporations, you know, to buffer themselves from the liability. But I just, uh, you know, there, there's got to be a way around it, you know, especially when these people are are profiting off of um, other people suffering and death. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, it, it just feels like it's a get out of jail free card. And um, it shouldn't be. I mean, if they were acting with uh, integrity and ethics, it would be one thing. But when they know these things and they do it anyway, then, um, you know, maybe that's the caveat. You know, if it can be proven that they knew things were dangerous and they did it anyway, then maybe, you know, their personal liability, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it kicks in then. I don't know. But uh, I, I'm no attorney, but it, it just seems logical to me. <laughs> I'm no attorney either. Um, I, I went to paralegal school, so I've got a little bit of that. But, you know, really, in order, the people who are making the laws making, are making them to, to benefit themselves. Really, the only thing that will change this is getting people who are not beholden to these interests to make laws to benefit the people. And, yep, and that just kind of brings us full circle to when you were a, uh, a kid in school and your teacher was telling you that uh, uh, people other than the lawyers and the doctors uh, need to be the ones running for office. Well, um, so um, that's about all I got for you tonight, uh, but I, I feel like, you know, there might be more you want to say. So, you know, I want to kind of give you the last word here. Is, is there any more about the magical activism or um, the current state of things or your campaign you want to share with listeners that maybe I haven't thought to ask? Oh, wow. Thank you, Karen. Um, well, let's see here. About magical activism, I would say that, you know, this is something that we can all do at any time, and it can make us feel more empowered in a world that definitely makes a lot of us feel very stepped on and un uncomfortable. Um, that part of what magical activism is, is about seeing the best possible vision of the future and putting your energy towards manifesting that outcome. And magical activism through the lens of uh, the political experience means phone banking. I love it. means canvassing, means taking your energy, holding that intention, and working towards the manifestation of whatever your highest goal is. And I would strongly encourage anybody who's listening to this who is feeling kind of overwhelmed and wants to feel like they're doing something bigger to find a candidate in the 2020 race that means something to you. Maybe city council, maybe mayor, maybe president. You know, if you're excited about Bernie Sanders or you're part of the Yang gang or, you know, Elizabeth Warren is your gal or, you know, maybe you're like, hey, the county auditor is so important. We need to know who's doing this work. You know, to find that person, to get involved in their campaign, to go to a thing, to put yourself out there a little farther than you would have otherwise, because this is how we make a difference. Our energy that we put into the system, that we put towards our highest selves and our highest goals, this is the energy 
you know, that is transforming the world for the better. And I would encourage anyone to to take your heart space to figure out what's important to you and to put a little magical activism into it in 2020. That being said, if you live in Portland, Oregon, and you'd like to volunteer for my campaign, <laughs> please bring your magical activism to me. I'm finding all the witches coming out of the woodwork now. It's it's kind of interesting. So, um, but I'll take anybody, you know, atheists, Christians, whomever. Well, and if you just want to make a, a donation to her campaign, uh, her website is uh, her name, uh, Lafleur, the number four. Oregon.com, LaFleur4Oregon.com. <laughs> Money is a concentrated I, form I of energy. <laughs> well, and, you know, and if I could just uh, say one last thing to piggyback on what you just said, you know, I think sometimes, um, well, let me put it this way. I was told a long time ago not to overestimate the general public. Um, you know, it, it, it was in the context of, um, you know, getting a job. But I think it applies here, too. You know, don't overestimate the people out there who hold public office. Um, you know, they're just average people like like you and I. Uh, oftentimes it's on-the-job training. And, you know, they're not terribly exceptional. So don't sell yourself short and think you couldn't do it or you're not good enough because, you know, it's simply not the case. I agree 100 percent. Um, and, you know, I have a little bit of training and I have a little bit of experience. I still have this voice inside of me sometimes that says, you know what, you can't do this. But you know what, I say to it every single time, yes, I can. I can do this. This is what I'm here to do. And I'm so prepared. Bring it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the best of luck to you. Um, I I hope this goes well. And uh, tell us again when the election is. It is May 19th, 2020. Okay. Well, as it gets closer, you'll have to uh, come back on the show and uh, let us know how it all went, okay? Oh, absolutely. I would love to. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, Leah, for being with us tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sharon. You're a delight. Well, you too, and good luck. Thanks. Okay, listeners, thank you for tuning in with us tonight. And uh, just a couple schedule changes coming up. Uh, The next two weeks, um, because of my guests' schedules, I will not be doing the show on Wednesday. Uh, Next week, I'll be doing the show on Thursday. And uh, I have with me Dawn Crystal, and our topic is Get Out of Pain Forever, uh, Fast and Easy. Uh, Dawn is an internationally recognized voice, sound, and energy healer and a medical intuitive. And uh, I think what uh, she has to say is going to be quite interesting, how we can get out of pain um, using these alternative therapies is, I think, where she's going. And then um, on the, the next week, uh, my show will be on Tuesday the 19th, and I have with me uh, Lilou Mace, and we are going to be 
talking about yoni stones. Yes, look it up. <laughs> uh, that should be an interesting conversation. Uh, she was supposed to be on the show um, about six or eight weeks ago, and uh, there was a glitch, and uh, she will actually be calling in from France, I believe, uh, on uh, Tuesday the 19th. And... Um, and the rest I will tell you the next time we're together. But uh, just a reminder, next week it will be Thursday, and then the following week it will be Tuesday. So that about does it for me, uh, dear listeners. Um, I hope uh, wherever you are, uh, you are having um, the best possible time, and uh, I wish you all well. Uh, Remember, you are the gas in my tank that keeps me going. So I appreciate uh, your emails and your listener loyalty. Uh, your ideas for, for uh, guests for the show, uh, it is all welcome. So you can always contact me at KarenTate108 uh, at Yahoo.com, and I would invite you to go to my new website, KarenTate.net. Uh, um, please uh, don't go to KarenTate.com anymore. That site uh, is no longer available, so it's KarenTate.net. Uh, when you go there, you can make a donation to help me keep the show on the air, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter uh, called Dancing at the Edges uh, with Karen Tate. Uh, you can sign up for this show uh, so that you can become a follower. You can find out about my books and classes. So uh, that about does it for me, and I will say good night. And until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>